You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Precision Powerlifting Systems, but I'm actually on the podcast, so I've done so many videos lately that now my automated intro is kind of fucked up. So let's do this over. I'm Kevin Cannon. I'm joined here by Big Joe Cap on, it's actually Joe's favorite podcast, by the way, Boston Strong. (laughs) Um, So basically, so Joe's a a local lifter here in Massachusetts. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you basically, you'll know who he is. Um, But just in case they don't, maybe a little background on you, Joe, how you got into powerlifting. Um, Yeah, and just fire away. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I came up to Boston from New York where I grew up, um, Belmont, New York, near Queens, if anybody knows about Belmont Racetrack or anything like that. That's where I grew up. I came to Northeastern University for undergrad, um, and I walked on to the track and field team. I was a pretty big dude, even in high school, you know, that summer coming into my freshman year of college, I was probably, you know, 6'2", 275. Um, I was a multi-sport athlete in high school. And I just really, I, I did a lot of sports and I never really got so good at one, but I was just an all around good athlete. And that included throwing the shot put for the track and field team. Um, so I walked on to the track and field team and you know, at the time they had an Olympian on the female side and one of the uh, top three thrower on the men's side. And uh, so, you know, it was really just like an honor to be on that team. But, um, you know, as my first in my first year there, I really wanted to work really hard and get better because I was probably, you know, the worst thrower on the team. So I was like, the crazy kid that was always in the weight room. And it got to the point where by the end of my freshman year, I was outlifting everybody on the team and, you know, squat bench and we didn't deadlift much, but at least those two lifts, um, we did a lot of hand cleans and stuff, but I really, I really wasn't good at those. Um, by my second year, I actually got cut from the team. There was uh, some like sweeping men's cuts due to title nine at Northeastern. And I just wasn't very good. You know, I, I didn't have good coaching in high school and I was just kind of behind the eight ball coming from public school in New York. And you're throwing at Northeastern with all these kids who came from private schools in New England who have these throwing programs and stuff. Um, but by that point, I was solidly the strongest kid on the track and field team, which is, you know, a lot when you have such talented throwers. During that process, I met Big Mike Zawolinski. He was the strength and conditioning coach. So I was actually training under him for a year and a half before I ever started powerlifting. And uh, I remember the day I got cut, I went into his office. I'm like, Mike, they they cut me, man. Like, you still going to let me work out in the varsity weight room? He was like, yeah, dude. And he was like, that's crazy because you're so strong. Like, why don't you um, – why don't we just do a powerlifting meet and like see what happens? So Mike had some experience in his high school years doing powerlifting with coach Alan Fanaro. He's the head football coach at Zavarian high school and he still uh, runs the high school powerlifting team there. So um, basically that's what we did. But instead of me just signing up for a meet, we actually recruited a bunch of students, um, kids from the rugby team, kids who had got cut from the football team. Um, so there wasn't the football- a powerlifting team yet. This is there was there was not. So that's the thing. I could have just signed up for a meet, 
but instead we we decided me and mike were like hey we have this cool opportunity and so we met with club sports and we got some funding you know we had to get at least 20 people interested write a constitution all this thing but we did a little bit of legwork and we actually just started an organization there so there had been a club powerlifting team maybe in the 70s or 80s but there hadn't been one in 20 years you know at that point this is in 2007 so i mean that's how long i've been powerlifting 13 years now but uh basically we got a bunch of people and we didn't know our asses from our elbows feds you know gear lifts but basically what we found was that usapl had a what seemed like a a collegiate nationals that was like well represented by a lot of schools and a lot of lifters uh compared to other collegiate nationals or meets we saw so what we did was i found the nearest meet in january 2008 and we just signed up it was actually a collegiate um usapl meet ran uh for the northeast it was run by steve mann i'm sure some of the people listening are familiar with steve mann he's directed some huge meets but i went down to a local meet and that was my first meet so we got in my car and we drove you know five hours each way to scranton pennsylvania and uh did a meet and actually i ordered z i ordered a z suit i ordered a blast shirt um we didn't even train in it. We just put them on and we just competed. You know, when we got there, Steve told us, you need deadlift socks. You need legless underwear or briefs. You can't wear that belt. Cause we had like bodybuilding belts with pads on them. So it was a whole shit show. Typical of your first meet experience. I think I, you know, picked my head off the bench too, stuff like that. But, you know, after that first competition, we, me and a couple other guys, we were pretty hooked. So, um, Actually, two of us were able to hit the qualifying total for collegiates, which was in Denver that year in 2008. And uh, we just spent our own money. We got plane tickets, a hotel, and we flew out. Ended up by that time, the time we got back, the school reimbursed us. And, you know, then the team really started to take off. We're like, oh, shit, they're going to pay for our travel. This is pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, I ended up somehow placing second at that meet, being my what second were your, meet. What were your numbers? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um I think my squat was 280 kilos or 617. And this is in a Z suit, knee wraps. Um, I benched around 413 in a blast shirt. And my deadlift was maybe 617 as well. And I actually pulled for the win. It was like 644 and got it turned down two to one on a hitch. So the numbers were low, you know, but this is the. Uh, at the collegiate level, you know, there were some guys there like Malik Durstein won that year in the 165s. And if anybody knows him now, he's a he, he had the all-time world record total in knee wraps, I think, at 181 for a short period of time. Um, but, I mean, there were some really good lifters there. There were totals in lower weight classes that would have won the Supers. I just think that year the Supers were really weak. Um because I mean, the, the, the next three years when I really got into powerlifting, I pushed that total really high and set the, you know, basically the American record, national record collegiate total, which still stands today. So that I was glad to finish in second, but I, I think it was kind of a fluke and I'm glad I didn't win because I feel like if I won at my second meet, a national meet, I would have got really like cocky about it and think, you know, my natural ability was enough, but losing really like made me want to, trained really hard the next 12 months do you think seeing the uh the lighter the lighter lifters out totaling you too must have pissed you off a little bit 
Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'm a super competitive person. Even the first meet I did, which I, I didn't even know the rules by the end of the meet, I was like, Oh, it's the best lifter award. Like how the fuck do I win that? You know what I mean? And I, a lighter lifter won it. Same thing at the, the first Nash collegiate national. They did a lighter lifter won the award. Um, and I was like, well, I want to win that too. You know, I, I don't, so, you know, I've always kind of been hyper competitive and, uh, so that was always like right away without even having a footing in the sport. I, I was always like, how do I become the best? You know, do you think a lot of super heavyweights just weren't participating in powerlifting at the time? Cause like, you know, there's well, always a thing in sports. I mean, I, yeah, I've been, I've been to, I'd say tw 12 collegiate nationals. You know, I lifted at four and coached at eight and um, the supers are never like the class to watch competitively, you know, there's usually one or maybe one or two guys that are squatting 900 pounds in single ply gear, which is impressive as a collegiate lifter. But then, you know, that lifter might also have a, they might be short and stocky and not be deadlifting well. You know, I think guys that are 6'2 and 350 pounds, <clears throat> they're probably playing college football, right? So yeah, at that good. first meet, I actually, Blaine Sumner competed, but he benched, he only benched because he had a knee injury from football or something. So like, and then he never did a collegiates again because he played four years of division one football and tried to go to the NFL before he became, you know, one of the strongest powerlifters of all time. So I just think the supers at collegiates, um, the, the representation isn't there, especially these kids are coming. You know, if you've ever been to collegiate nationals, the big schools that compete there, are LSU, Texas, Louisiana tech, um, Florida, you know, it's very well represented for Southern schools. At, collegiate, at the collegiate level in USAPL. And so, you know, what are the 350-pound kids doing at those schools or playing football? So the genetic freaks aren't there. Right. Like if you never – if you didn't get cut from the track and field team, you probably wouldn't have participated in collegiate nationals, right? Sure, sure. And, you know, we, we ended up getting uh, – at Northeastern maybe two or three years in, so maybe around 2009, the football program there got – cut completely it just got defunded so we actually got a couple guys and within a few months they were you know we had them place top three or top five at collegiate nationals and the challenge with they were probably the strongest dudes in their class the challenge there was getting them into equipment in between the fall and collegiate nationals which in april all in the same year so you have a couple months to get them qualified and get them in equipment so any of these guys who played football at a collegiate level could win the meet you know, if, if they trained for any substantial amount of time in, in the heavier classes. So we, we did, we did kind of have a little experiment with that too, but. I mean, I, I kind of think it's, you know, like granted, like for me, powerlifting just became an outlet, a sports outlet when other sports weren't like in my early thirties, it's like, well, I can't do what I was doing anymore. And it's like, this seems kind of fun. Um, yeah. and I think the fact that it's, at the collegiate level, the fact that it's offered even, right, for those, you know, you walked on, right? And, like, maybe someday there's scholarship opportunities. I know there's, what, like, three or four schools that offer scholarships for powerlifting now? Yeah, a few, yep. You know, like, it could be an outlet for that kid who might not be that great at football or just wants to do more individual type of sport. Um, I don't know. I think that aspect of it will grow in the competitiveness of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's kind of where I was at you know, as an 18 year old kid, I really, what I wanted to do was I wanted to play division one lacrosse. So for most of my high school career, even though I was six foot two early on, I grew, I grew to six foot two when I was 14. 
15 and I stayed that height, you know, I was around 200 pounds most of my high school career. And I was, I was a lacrosse player. And, you know, if you've watched lacrosse, you run a lot. Um, So I took on the shop put track and field later on just to do a winner. I actually joined the track team to run right on for lacrosse off season. Cause when you play sports at a, at a public school in New York, you know, the, there was not a weight room where we train, there wasn't off season training programs. You know, our coaches were our teachers. So and there was no extra training. So it was upon myself. I walked to a gym to lift weights at a bodybuilding gym. And then I joined the track and field team indoor only to run, to stay in shape for lacrosse. Cause my goal was to play division one lacrosse. And, um, what happened was when you're walking around and you're six foot two, 200 pounds, what does a track and field coach do? He says, you're throwing shot put today, right? So I'm like, shit, I don't want to throw a shot put. I was also running like the 800. All right. So (laughs) I know this shit's hard to believe if you see me, but we're talking, you know, at this point, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. But um, so, you know, I do an indoor shot just for, to help the team score points on the shot put. And I end up throwing it the furthest and in just a standing throw. And uh, he goes, you're throwing shot put for the rest of the year. So, you know, I did that for my last two winters in high school, but I didn't even do track and field year round. So, you know, like I was kind of just pushed and pulled. I never focused on anything like 100% other than lacrosse. And I never played a, uh, you know, everybody always asked me like, why don't you play football? What's wrong with you? I never played one down of organized football. Just uh, it wasn't a popular sport at my school. Um the lacrosse team was better. You know, I was better at lacrosse. And, you know, one story I always tell people is when I was like 13 or 12, I wanted to play peewee football with my friends. So I go to get weighed in and I I, I weighed too much to play with my friends in my grade. And so then I said, well, I don't want to play with these kids. I don't know. I'm here for fun. You know, you're 12 years old, so I'm not going to play football. So I just did other things. So I don't know. That's kind of how I ended up doing the track and field thing. But I think, you know, maybe in an alternate universe, I would have played football and utilized my size and my frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, what did your training look like? So going into that first meet, you you and Big Mike sitting down talking about doing a powerlifting meet. What did your training look like? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know doing this stuff for so long i pretty much tried everything but in the beginning it was very heavily you know talk about 2007 kevin and and you know there wasn't all the training information on the internet right so we were literally reading paper articles from louis simmons and going on the west side website and reading about the conjugate system and circumax phases and all this shit so really my training was a max effort bench day a speed bench day. We had a max effort lower day and a speed lower day. So we had four days a week. So we would basically do those lifts and we would do, you know, assistance work that, you know, maybe other athletes or West side would do some light bodybuilding movements or glute ham raises, like all the stuff that is preached in um, conjugate style training. And I did that pretty much the entire time I was in college. Cause all this, all this stuff that's online now about, you know, undulation and RPE and it, it just wasn't there. And to boot all competitive powerlifting in the USAPL was equipped. So if you were thinking about equipped lifting, everybody looked towards Louis Simmons, even though he was multiply, we pulled, you know, training principles from West side. And there was actually 
you know, a whole cycle we ran, a Circa Max cycle, we actually called Westside, talked to Louis Simmons on the phone, and had him modify the Circa Max percentages and waves for a single ply lifter. So he actually, you know, we actually had a conversation with him briefly about what we should do and how we should like treat the Circa Max if we were you know, single ply and we were kind of younger and we, we were natural lifters and he kind of walked us through a quick thing. We wrote it on a piece of paper and we did it. That's kind of cool that like he was willing to do that for people who he had no idea who you were, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, he, I, I'm pretty sure if you, you, I mean, this is, you know, 12 years ago at this point, but I think if you called the gym, then he would answer the phone. I, I don't know about now, but you know, it wouldn't hurt trying. There's also big Mike actually went there and uh he wanted to train and um he uh the only requirement was he had to eat breakfast with louis before he was allowed to train at the gym so louis could like get to know you before he lets you train with one of his crews so then mike trained <laughs> sure it didn't go great but uh it happened i uh one i love breakfast so i'd be down to uh yeah <laughs> so you started doing like a more conjugate style and I know you do stuff. I know Mike does stuff. So, I mean, from almost completely opposite now, more like higher volume stuff. So I, yeah. I kind of like to hear like that, uh, how you kind of went from that to doing what you do now. That'd be kind of cool. Well, yeah, sure. Like in the summers, you know, in college, I would, Mike had these crazy programs and I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they were called German volume training. And it was like yeah. 10 by 10s on sub movements. And then there were like, uh, you would hit a heavy set and then do all these cluster drop sets. And um, I used to puke all the time, <laughs> like running that stuff. And that was like our off season, you know? Um, so that there was a little bit of exposure to that just from Mike doing research on like off season, high volume stuff. And I did rely on Mike for a while. Um, and then as I got older and, you know, I think, lifting in the conjugate style kind of like after three four years and i get out of college and i'm kind of like at this place where i feel like i'm not getting stronger anymore i search for other ways and so you know we did we ran the brad gillingham deadlift program we watched his dvd i mean it was like we were getting information the only way we knew how until like this internet internet age hit powerlifting we ran the ed Cohn, mark Philippi program um we tried to look at how brian siders trained he used to have a training log he kept online which was crazy high volume and that started to make me kind of think and then um wade hooper had a had a youtube channel where he was just basically chronicling all the shiko workouts he was doing and so like we're downloading shiko um Shiko templates online um i had some russian volume program i got off an olympic lifter and so i started combining all these things and one thing we really love too i know i'm just dropping a ton of programs but an anello that the anello deadlift program if you've ever seen that spreadsheet or seen that online it's something vince anello wrote on how to peak for a deadlift meet basically um so we actually took some of these things and combined them like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do conjugate style benching. Cause we liked to do partials bands chains for upper body. Um, we're going to do the Anello deadlift. And then we're going to do this, um, you know, Russian 
volume program for squat or we're going to run a Chico for squat. Some guys ran small of too. And um, I never did. I always thought that that was a little bit too much. Um, I've actually taken small of and, uh, and I kind of reduced it down um, and have some of my lifters run it now um, because I just didn't think it was made for a natural lifter to, to run that squat cycle. So, you know, we started getting into all these high volume training programs and mixing and matching um, what seemed good and what seemed fun. And, you know, now, you know, after now I coach and I've been coaching for four years and coached myself, I've had other coaches and I've just taken all my experiences and just kind of created a, you know, training principles that I think, lend itself to longevity and and just you know good performance in the sport and w week over week staying healthy and getting stronger so you know i, I couldn't specifically descri describe it but there's definitely influences from all those things i mentioned what does it kind of look like now could you give like a little example here um it depends on the lifter but for me you know i i prefer to bench three times a week squat three times a week and and pull twice a week and maybe have an auxiliary pull. Um, you know, I, I probably have for each lift a main day and a secondary day where there's, uh, you know, some type of volume work around the 80% range. Um, cause I found that range is, is good to, to get strength work in and practice your technique. You can move the bar with speed between 75 and 85%. Um, but usually it's around 80 um, so that's like a staple of my programming every week you're hitting like the same load might be for a different combination of sets and reps, but you're hitting that weight as kind of like, um, just, just one of your moderate days. And then I'll undulate between if the squat on the heavier day, if the squat or the deadlift is going to take precedent. So on a heavier day, you know, maybe you're squatting a few triples over 90%. So I'd have deadlifts either the same day or, you know, the following training um, session be a little lighter, you know, um, so I don't push both lifts in the same week. How much lighter would the deadlifts be? I mean, if, uh, you know, work over 90% is considered heavy, I'd go up to 85% for singles or maybe even less. Maybe it's, it's, it's reps at a, at a lower percentage, but I would never push both over 90% in the same week. Um, especially, and it depends. Like when I coach guys like myself or, or bigger guys, 105 or over, I, I really stick to that because I feel like um, the recovery just isn't there to do um, both lower body lifts in the same week over 90% or approaching 95%. Um, but I found with some lightweight females, like I, I coach some really good female lifters um, and I coach the Northeastern girls team. Um, so I'll have them bench up to four times a week, no problem they can pretty much go over 90 up to 95% or, or heavier singles on bench every week. And on the lower body, you can get away with more um, heavier loads between the two every single week with a female lifter, uh, especially a lightweight female lifter. So I think it, it, it varies, but I mean, the staples of my program are volume work at 80% and basically undulating the lower body lifts to do your heavy work. Maybe you're going for a rep PR or a single in one or the other um, later in the week. And the bench is pretty consistent where um, I like to have a close grip day or kind of like a partials day, um, just your 80% day. And then maybe something else if it's shirted bench or just 
pause competition, raw bench, some heavier work. Um, and for all three lifts, I like to, to have, I don't do a lot of bands and chains, but I like to have safety bar squats, high bar squats. I love pause squats. Um, bench, there's so many variations we do. And the, de the deadlift, I, you know, the deadlift, we do some RDLs or snatch grip deadlift, but, and some block pulls, but I don't mix in much more than that. I don't do a lot of pause deadlifts and shit like that. Okay. Um, so, you know, when you're running a conjugate program, you'd probably typically get like, Let's, I'm making this up, but let's say you get like three singles at, at or above 90%. Yeah. And now you do triples, you know, around 90%. How come you stuck with the triples as opposed to the singles? Oh, well, that was just an example. I mean, I do uh, for equip training, specifically if I'm talking single ply, I'll start with triples between depending on how far out and how much work you have to do with an equip lifter to get them ready for a meet, triples between 80 to 90 percent usually trying to end it some triples at 90 percent and that will kick your ass in equipment oh, yeah. um deadlift not really so much I, I really think i stick to singles on deadlift in a suit um for everybody but just say, say take the squat and then you know by the i really like training doubles so i'll have a lifter train heavy doubles until the very last heavy session where we'll hit a few singles at like 97% of what I think is the target max at the meet. Um, you know, usually the timing of that is, is pretty, it's pretty cookie cutter, but I have lifters complete their heaviest squat and deadlift by at least two weeks out in gear. Um, and I have the bench done at around 95%, like 10 days out. And then if it's like a lightweight lifter or a female lifter, I'll have them a week out work up to like last warmups in equipment because, you know, the, the recovery's great there. So I feel like getting in gear and keeping, keeping in the equipment every week sometimes is important to a lighter weight lifter. Or for me, sometimes I don't get in my gear for two weeks before a meet. Um, just because the loads when you're a super heavyweight lifter will really beat you up and you kind of need to take that time. Uh, yeah, especially before a competition, right? Yeah, hundred percent. But yeah, we 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 do singles. I was just using those triples as an example, but I usually start with some triples, and that's the highest reps that I will, you know, administer to an athlete or myself in equipment, no matter what the lift is, even on the bench press. Because um, you know, some people will like to do like sets, even if to boards, I wouldn't do more than a set of three in gear. I've seen recently there's been a trend of high reps in equipment, and I just don't. <clears throat> believe that that transfers over um especially seeing people i know and uh people i train with who have done it when they've been coached by other people um i just don't think it's a great uh thing for equip lifting you know sets of eight are great uh in your off-season training or raw training um but I, I i don't really implement that much within 10 weeks of a meet at all i you know, I mean, even a triple, right, in in equipment, like, th there gets to be the point where it just, like, I understand, like, maybe some higher rep sets to learn how to deal with the pressure, and, you know, each rep tends to look better, but there's, like, I don't know, I, like, me personally, I don't think I could do another rep over a triple and it not just go to complete and utter fucking dog shit, and plus yeah. the load that I would be using for that just wouldn't, like, have a lot of carry hundred percent The you know, it's, it's linear in a sense where 
if I'm starting fresh with a lifter and they have 10 weeks to get ready for an equip meet, we'll start with triples at 80%, number one, so I can see what the hell's going on. And number two, because I firmly believe that there has to be some acclimation period between a raw training cycle and then getting into gear. So oh, yeah. for me, if I'm have a great raw training cycle, but I haven't been in my gear in months, I can't, I can't physically get in my gear and I probably can't even, I couldn't squat 900 pounds, right? Day one. So I start with a much lighter load and do, you know, three doubles or two triples, something like that. Um, and slowly acclimate my body. And I can feel week over week, I'm getting used to getting gear. And again, we call it like, Oh, I feel like I'm at home again, you know? Um, and then by the meet, I'm peaking and I could squat over a thousand pounds. But I, I'm telling you, there's some days where 800 pounds, if it's early on, it feels like it feels horrible. Um, so I, I tend to do a linear progression in equipment, even though week to week, you know, the squat or deadlift might be the focus. So it's not completely linear, linearly. If you're just following one lift, you know, there's alternating focuses each week, but we're the taking fluctuations it. Along yeah, exactly. So things are fluctuating with me. I won't squat heavy twice. Um, like if I'm squatting heavy every Friday night, I won't squat heavy Friday. And then the next Friday, I will never do it two weeks in a row as, as, as soon as I cross over 90% equipment for me, which is not, you know, easy, easy mass is 900 pounds. So for me, if I try to squat 900 pounds or more in equipment, two weeks in a row, the second week is such trash. It's not even worth doing. So I'll actually only be in gear every other week. Some of my best training cycles. Um, so I'm yeah, there are a couple of things I actually want to touch on there. Cause like I had a, it reminded me of a conversation. So um, this is probably, this was actually after my meet in January, I was talking to Anthony Oliveira out yep. in, uh, and one of the things that I was, you know, talking about, I'm like, cause I was in my gear so much before the meet. Cause like I had to figure out how to fucking use it before Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I went out into the meet. So I just didn't care. I'm like, I, I don't care how much this beats me up. If I have to take it off for a day, I'll take it off, but I'm just going to run with it. And, and, um, you know, we were talking about like carryover to raw lifting and he made a really good point. And I want to get your take on this. He was like, you know, everybody who says that equipped lifting won't make your raw lifts go up. He, he talked about there being a transition process of once you take the equipment off, the raw lifts just feel different. And there's just like what you're saying, there's this reacclimation process to it. But over the long term, they'll both feed each other in the same in the same way. And I'd like your uh, input on that. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, um, as when I'm in the midst of a equipped training cycle, my raw lifts do change. I see substantial losses on bench and squat specifically. And I believe that's because most of the lift, you know, 90% of your success in those lifts and equipment and even raw, it's about executing the eccentric, right? Um, if you hit the eccentric portion of the bench and the squat, right, you're, chance of success on that particular lift is really high, right? So when you change the eccentric portion so much by getting in a bench shirt or squat suit, and you're really messing with that movement pattern and that strength curve, I do see some pretty significant losses on my raw lifts. Um, and so usually I'm never, I, you know, my focus goes completely off of raw training. Um, and I usually stay within that 75 to 85 percent range for raw training through a long equipped cycle i'm talking like 10 12 weeks and some people might think that's boring or whatever but that's what i love to do and 
save the heavy ones for the equip days. But um, I think deadlift, um, it's pretty much a non-factor, especially as a conventional puller. I can pretty much be in and out of my suit at will and not really change that. I mean, a, a, a long a long cycle in your deadlift suit, you might lose some strength off the floor because you're just used to having the assistance off the floor to get the, the barbell started. So you might lose some of that, that like crispness or that tightness when you really lock it on a raw deadlift, that, that kind of goes away too. Um, but it, you know, when you do get out of it, you know, it's pretty quick to get back to normal and, um, you have to be careful. And I say overall, you know, my, the upper ends of my lifts are so strong. So like my bench lockout, you know, my quads, I, um, basically if I get a lift off my chest or out of the hole, even raw, you know, my experience is I could lock out lifts. Um, so I think it has helped my raw lifts really. I've been an, an equipped lifter for so long that if anything, my weaknesses are in the bottom portions of the squat and bench. Um, and, you know, I've had, you know, that's why I've implemented pause squats and pause bench and things like that to try and help me even my strength curve, you know? Makes sense. How much, uh, so when you're in the equipment, do you do a lot of like straps down stuff or is it like full equipment and go type of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because I feel like that's that's another trend and that's something that's been going on in equipped lifting for probably 20 years, seeing guys like Ed Cohn or like Wade Hooper train straps down. And for me, I... I don't train straps down. All right. So that started, I noticed when I was doing strap straps down training years ago is that I was bending over because you're, you have this point load under your hips, but you're not getting that tight tightness in the back. So it's almost like you're separating your upper body and your lower body where really you need things to work in unison and you kind of want to perform the squat the same way every time. So I started training only straps up number one, to protect injuries in my back and number two, to just make the, make the lift more uniform throughout the whole cycle. Um, when you don't have your straps up, your suit tends to slide under you stuff tends to move, um, which I'm not a huge fan of, you know, I want everything to feel, like it's going to feel. And, you know, there are days I'm lifting lighter and you would think, Hey, you go straps down, but I've actually, you know, I keep two or three sets of gear, um, for each lift, of course, as over the years, you know, never get rid of your gear. You take your old comp suit and you save that for training days. So I have old comp suits that I'll get in that are looser that I can hit depth with 800 pounds and do, you know, my doubles or triples for the day and not have to be like, oh, I should take my straps down so I should, can get depth and make a legit training rep. Like, number one, I don't care. And number two, I'll just wear different stuff and save save my actual tight comp stuff for later. Um, so actually, every time I'm in gear, it's full gear, whether it's deadlift, bench, you know, or squat. How often are you in your bench shirt? The bench shirt's different, you know, I if I'm in either or for squat and dead every other week and alternate those to the bench shirt, sometimes I'll go three straight weeks and then take it off in the fourth week. Um, so you, you can get in the bench shirt a lot. You know, the bench is the one I struggle with the most to have a consistent stroke, touching point, touching period. Um, so I, I do tend to get in it more and to keep my bench competitive um whereas in the the deadlift and squat it's it's almost like if i'm training for nationals you know it's more of just i'm trying to maintain 
or make a very small gain on those lifts where bench, I feel like I still have room to improve equipped, uh, obviously based on things that other people are doing in the IPF. Um, you know, there's a, I'm, I'm not competitive in bench and that's where my total suffers. Um, you know, there's, there's good reasons to get in a bench shirt every week. You try different shirts, you try wearing your shirt different, um, different techniques, uh, there's so many things you can do with a bench shirt that uh, it's always good to get in that and, you know, twist the sleeves, pull the collar down. You know, there's so many things I try to try and find that perfect bench press. Cause when you do find it, it it's, it is great. And uh, you know, so I, that, that one tends to be like, you can beat yourself up on bench uh, the most. I, uh, so I have, oversized equipment that I wear to like train. And, and so one of the things that I was running into was, you know, I swung the pendulum so far one way before the competition by getting into my gear so much. And I was doing a, so I would do like full gear top set type stuff and then like take off some gear. So maybe straps down as like back downs. Um, but like, I wasn't doing any raw stuff. And then all of a sudden my raw lifts suffered. And then I was like, Oh, I should probably build my raw lifts back up. And then I did a ton of raw stuff. And then it was actually for Jess's deadlift challenge. I was like, fuck, I'm going to throw the suit on and pull something. And then I realized I just haven't touched loads like this before. And I couldn't like, I just couldn't lock it out the same. Like I haven't missed a sub 600 deadlift in a long time. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to find this like balance between the two. So, I mean, we run a lot of singles and a lot of variations and stuff. So I, um, and the interesting thing though, is like, we use that 80% volume almost every other week. So it's like heavy singles, 80% volume. So it's similar to your programs in some way to slower frequency. Um, but yeah. I'll wear like a 46 suit bottom and do like, so on Monday I did like SSV with Vans box spots, um, you know, full depth. And I feel like with the straps down, like it really, like my upper back is a weakness and I do feel it really builds up my upper back. And it's kind of limiting on loads too. Um, and then I'll do all my back down stuff just completely raw based off of like percentages. So when I talk to Shaco about it, he said, just have two maxes, like your maxes in equipment, your maxes raw. And I'll use those raw numbers to do my back down stuff. Um, yep. But I'm also only training three days a week. I'm curious, like your thoughts on that process. I know we have like similar in a lot of ways, but differences in opinions on. Uh, yeah, I mean, just in general, I mean, there's there's so many ways to skin a cat, in my opinion, with programming that. Anybody who preaches like their program is superior or, or whatnot is kind of crazy because there's a lot of people getting strong out there by mistake. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a well thought out pro all it needs to be is well thought out. Really. It doesn't have to follow any other specific principle. So I track volume, total volume on the lifts, um, week to week, just to make sure everything is not out of whack. And I could really like track that down as we get closer to meet. Um, and that's just something that I do. And I also do, you know, if, if you were looking at one of my programs, you would see your max is equipped and raw, and you would see your weekly volume totals as you go through a month of programming. Um, so you can kind of, I always want the lifter to kind of learn and follow along. So maybe I only coach them for a year or 18 months, and then they go off on their own. And that happens all the time because I don't hide anything. I, I show percentages, I show everything, and you can kind of follow along and see, you know, what the fundamentals of the entire thing are. 
and I also send out months a month at a time. So it's not like, you know, one of my problems when I was being coached by multiple other coaches who did a good job, but I didn't like being uh, programmed week to week because I feel like the planning lacked because you could always you could always go back and change things or just kind of fly by the seat of your pants week to week, especially if you're like in a 20 week training cycle for a big meet, you know, there's not that much attention to detail um, what's going on week to week over an entire period of time um, over the macro cycle as, as most people would say. So that's kind of things that I try to do differently. Um, but really I have people training four to five days a week, depending on what they want to do or who they are. And, uh, it's funny you bring up upper back because some people I have do upper back four days a week. I mean, whether it's dumbbell rows, barbell rows, lat pull downs, pull ups. I mean, you can never have enough for powerlifting and and for equip lifting specifically. You can never have enough. You really can't. Um, and I don't really worry about over taxing somebody in those movements. I mean, if it's three or four days a week, it is what it is. Or sometimes it'll just be two days with multiple upper back exercises. But I really don't stress about that. I do drop it as you get closer to the meat, obviously. But, um, you know, as far as drop sets and things like that, I don't implement that. I, I you know, if you want to talk about like Perlopin's table, you know, I follow – a lot of the work ends up fitting in that category, whether it's at 80%, 85%, 90%, depending on what day of the week it is. So I, I don't see the point in doing drop sets. I like to do multiple working sets at the same percentage. Um, it's very rarely where I'm like, okay, you're going to work up to one triple and then you're going to do this. You know, it's usually multiple sets. Um, and then, you know, we, we talked about the gear stuff as well. And you're training straps down and then you're doing raw drop sets. I necessarily wouldn't do that. If you're training three days a week, you might have to do that. But for me, if someone's training four or five days a week, I'm going to have other opportunities to do different movements. Um, so would you take the, so, cause I basically do each movement on its own day. So one day, you, yeah. you know, maybe do your higher intensity squat stuff one day and then the following day, cause I know that like demo wolves programs are set up, kind of similar in some ways and shaker was very similar mm -hmm. to this where the following day would just be like lighter lower intensity so like squat and deadlifts and shaker's programs were like interchangeable like lower body stuff so it could be like yeah. 80 percent for some volume day one but then like 70 percent technique work for deadlifts day two and then maybe lighter squat stuff day three heavier squat stuff day uh deadlift stuff day four yeah it could be it could be any any of those things a lot of times i'll i'll like to like if you're doing your equip squats on a certain day and that's your squat day i would have you you know take your squat suit off and then do a bunch of um deadlift accessories like whether that's rdls or just some quick conventional pulls so you get really two made movements per day even though you're spending if, if you have three days of training and you could and you're limited to two hours a day you're spending an hour and 15 minutes on your squat and you're spending 45 minutes on a, a second deadlift day or if that's not possible i'd have had people you know train squat heavy say and then wake up the next morning and you're, you are deadlifting i mean i don't have to necessarily have rest days separating lower body lifts i just think i think it's more of the total volume you're accumulating over a period of time could cause injury not necessarily if it, you know deadlifting the next session yeah. like as long so, as you're prepared for the work yeah so i you know if you if you were training three days a week and i've had the situation i would you know obviously have one of the lifts be the main focus and then 
have another lift be a secondary focus and not spend all your time on just the one lift because then you can you can get a higher frequency without having like crazy time and effort devoted to you know a second squat day or something you know what i mean right. if you if you if you did your deadlift day and then you did some quick ssb squats the next day you benched and maybe you did some bodybuilding stuff and then the next day you you uh squatted and then did some some different uh deadlift movements lighter um you could still kind of keep to your time you know your time frame if you're constrained for time like i'm sure you are and that's why you're training three days a week but um, yeah, um that's kind of how i would approach it I, you know and i do find obviously like i worked with shaco for three years like i find some efficacy in the higher frequency stuff so actually the end of our weeks so we'll do our max effort squat day one bench on day two We'll do some bench rep work day three, followed by either a deadlift max effort or rep work in like the 80% range that alternates weekly. But then day four, that's when we do light squat and pulls again. Yeah. So like, because I, like me personally, I always found that like those lighter days for some reason, just, you know, I understand that it's more stress on the body and there are times where days off are more appropriate and everything is like situational based, but I found just moving around, you know, Ed Cohn used to say that like what made you sore will also make you recover. So like those lighter squats and deadlifts just kind of help like get some good technique work at the end of the week, move around, get out some of that soreness, you know, take an off day or two and then come back ready to hit a day one. Like I do like some of the higher frequency stuff. Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely times in my life and when I was probably even stronger than I am now that I trained five or six days a week. And if you think about training six days a week, it's like, and you're a power after like, what the hell are you doing in the gym? All right. So I had a you know, I had a job that wasn't as challenging as my, my career is now, you know, I was younger. I lived really close to Bay state and I was, I didn't have like uh, anything extra going on. It was go to work, then eat and power lift. Right. Now, as I've got older, you know, there's, there's so many things going on and my career's crazier and whatever. And I train four days a week, but at that time, I mean, I would go into the gym and do overhead squats I would do RDLs with like 30% of my max. Like I would go in and just move around. And, you know, there were some times I, I was doing a pulling movement five times a week, but it wasn't like I was killing myself. I was actually the strongest I ever was in 2016. And I was training an exorbitant amount. Um, I was swimming on some days for recovery. I just had this time to do these things when I was 26, you know, that I don't do anymore now. So I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think the problem is I'm a very disciplined lifter. You know, I'm very patient. If I have to go in and do um, snatch grip deadlifts with 150 keys, and that's not boring to me. I love that. Um, I love that type of stuff. I could go and pause squat a hundred keys till the day to, till the cows come home. Right. That's exciting to me still just cause I'm in the gym, I'm having fun and I'm exercising and it, it's working towards the goal of becoming a stronger powerlifter. I think there's a lot of lifters out there that, that just never going to register. They're never going to go to the gym on an extra day and be able to keep the loads done enough to have it be healthy, you right. know? So, you know, everybody's, wants to have crazy lifts and video their lifts and all this stuff. And, you know, that's just not me. Um, it, my singles or PR attempts raw or equipped, they're few and far between, you know, after 13 years, um, it's a very, you know, you have to approach your strength in waves. You know, I'm just not at my best year round. Um, so, you know, you have to be very patient.
And I've learned to do that over the years. And, you know, when I was training more frequently, the percentages were lower, the volume was higher, but the percentage was lower. And I felt like it put out a better product. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with, uh, with any of them. Like, I mean, obviously as a coach who charges people, it's hard to say this, but like the first three years of somebody lifting, just, I don't just do whatever the fuck you want. Like yeah. you're going to, you're going to get stronger, just build a base. And I think, you know, like me coming from the base that I like having Shaco as my base, I think was extremely important in the beginning. Like, I think it definitely built, you know, the sub max, the technique, the volume, the repetition. Like, I think there's, um, a ton to be said for that. And I think even after that point, so after that, like, and I'm making up, this is just an arbitrary number, this three years thing, but even for lifters in that, a three year, four year, five year mark, it's still incremental. Like I try to tell PPS all the time, like it's not necessarily about hitting PRs, but it's about setting yourself up for the opportunity to attempt a PR because they're few and far between. But if you do everything right and you stack the deck in your favor with your attitude, your focus, paying attention to technique on those lighter days, not just doing it because, you know, 60% to 70% for, you know, 12 doubles is very easy, but it's there for you to visualize, to work on the technique, to move around, to do those types of things. If you stack the deck, deck in your favor, you make good training decisions, you're going to set your, yourself up for more of those opportunities. And at some point, just statistically speaking, you're going to hit one and then it's going to yep. set you up for the next one. Um, and I do I agree. think that that's something that's lost. I think, I don't know if it's the internet or it's just a lot of people who maybe didn't participate in sports and understanding that it's a long-term process. Um, but it is, it's like, and I even have like lifters now. So obviously when you, so like we don't, with our max effort stuff, there's a ton of variation. So you're very, very rarely ever overloading a lift, right? So like the variations make lower loads heavier. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with, you know, it's, you know, something that Shaco was very big on. So you run into these like situations where all of a sudden, like, all right, we've got a meet coming up. So you start getting everything a little bit more narrowed down. And if somebody doesn't hit a PR on day one, it's like, this sucks. I'm going to go kick some rocks and sulk about it for a week. And it's yeah. like, you know, they just, they don't understand the, like, we talk a lot about day-to-day -day fluctuations, but there's periods of time where it's like, you're going to go four, five, six. I remember like Yuri Belkin talking about going five years without a PR in any of his lifts. Kudama from Japan. Um, I had a lifter in Germany and his training partner uh, trains for their national team. Kudama came in and he's like, you know, this is obviously translated, but he's like, sometimes you're going to train for years without progress, but you got to just keep training and keep having fun. And like that, like really stuck with me. And, um, you know, yeah, maybe if you it, touch upon like those long periods of time where there's like stagnated process. It resonates. Uh, it resonates with me as well. And and I guess my opinion on the three year thing is that, <clears throat> like, can I say that conjugate works? I don't know because it was the first thing I did. You know, I, I tell people what has worked for you more than once, right? So like, did my numbers go crazy when I ran a circa max phase? Yeah, I squatted eight sixty as a senior in college. Um, and it was a huge PR at the time. And it was a, a national record at the time. Um, did the Gillingham deadlift program work? Yeah, it worked the first time. But then when you set a huge PR and then you go back and you try to hit two sets of 10 raw once a week on, on conventional deadlift, it doesn't work again, right? Oh. So like what has worked for you more than once? You know, I've ran all the Chico programs. I've ran all these programs. So it's like in the first three years, everything's going to work. 
um, everybody is getting better for the first five years. And then within this five-year window, people either get burnt out or hurt. So I'm really looking for the, who are the lifters who have been around for more than five years? Right now, especially in the USIPL, there's not that many because um, the sport's growing at such a rapid rate. A majority of the lifters are novice lifters, right? Which is great. But then you have novice lifters preaching about what training styles they're using. And to me, it's just, it's just, you it's just bad information because, you know, I could have fucking squatted big Mike for reps and I would have got stronger when I was 20 years old. Um, so I definitely agree with you there. There's so many things that work. And that's why I say there's just a million ways to skin a cat with strength training, especially when you're working with a novice lifter. You know, one of my, one of, one of the things I pay attention to when I coach 60 lifters and they were running a team programming exercise at Northeastern how I track their success is what are the guys and, and females who have been lifting for three or four years on this team? Are they progressing? Right. So I was keeping a spreadsheet of their maxes and percent change. Do I care if the kid, the freshman who just came in is gaining on his lift? Yes. But his lifts are going up 20% a semester. You know, I'm, uh, am I getting 5% from these, um, you know, these 22 year old kids versus these 18 year old kids. So that's very important to me. And um, just uh, on the long periods of time without a PR, you know, personally, I've been there for very long periods of time. Um, in 2016, I squatted 1,014 um, at Open Nationals. And uh, I didn't squat 1,019 until 2019 at Open Nationals. So that took me three years. Um, what happened was that at 2016 World Championships, uh, I – squat a thousand three on my second attempt and obviously i was going to go for like 10 25 but i blew out i blew out my lower back um and that really hindered me for 18 months and i kept competing you know 20 going into that the next meet six months later was the world games which was a once in a lifetime opportunity and uh i hit a bench pr but i didn't hit a squat or deadlift pr because my lower body was messed up um and i was able to get the silver medal there but um, that set off a chain of events that I didn't hit a squat or deadlift PR for three years. Um, same thing with the deadlift. I hit 799 in 2016. Actually, I hit it in 2015 at Open Worlds. And I didn't, I, I two and a half kilo PR'd my deadlift to 804 at the 2019 Arnold. Um, you know, because I really did, I was telling you in 2015 to 2016, I was training very frequently and I had a very low stress lifestyle and I was 100% focused on winning a world championship for IPF equipped powerlifting. And, um, I ended up accumulating all these injuries at my strongest and it set me back until 2019 where I was able to have a breakthrough and, and PR my total multiple times. So I, you know, that was a very long period of time. If you could um, go back now, what would you tell your 2015, 2016 self about training? Oh, man, I would probably, you know, I was actually pretty smart then. I, I took my opportunities, my rare opportunities to hit PRs in the gym. I, I took those and I was successful with those. But what I did realize is um, by 2017, you know, um, I started to push it so much that I wanted to hit certain numbers in training to get prepared for meet where say in when, when I've had successful training cycles, you know, if I pull 750 in the gym and it has good speed, I could 
pull 800 in the meet and not do anything else in the gym. That could be the end of the training cycle. Before I squat 1019, my my gym squat was um, I'm trying to think, but 936, right? So that's 80, almost 80 pounds of difference between my top training set and what I actually was able to execute in the meet. Um, and I realized that unfortunately, as I got older, what had happened to me was I started pushing the numbers so hard that I would take my meat PR, which early on in my career, all my meat PRs were way higher than my gym PRs. And then I started to eclipse that where I'm like, well, fuck, I want to, you know, two weeks out of IPF worlds, I'm going to hit a thousand, thousand 25 squat, which I did one year. And, uh, you know, I squatted my opener at the meet, um, because of, just not being fresh, not being able to hit depth, um, strength issues, whatever it may be. And that happened, that happened to me multiple times where, oh, shit, I pulled 821 three weeks out of 2015 IPF Worlds. Well, I pulled 799 in the meet because I lost grip on my second attempt. And then I ended up coming back and getting it. And whatever those factors may be, is that I had a better success rate um, when my lifts stayed under PR levels in the gym. Um, and I waited until the meet to execute big PR lifts. Um, and that might be a function of being, you know, 365 pounds for 12 years. And, and the way a super peaks for a meet is, you know, it is different. I think, you know, our hormones are just not as available to recover in short periods of time as, you know, a a 181 pound male lifter. Um, So I, you know, so if I could go back, I would tell myself in 2016 and 2017 to stop trying to squat a thousand pounds in the gym because it doesn't fucking matter because every time I did end up squatting a thousand pounds in a meet is probably, I probably only squatted 950 or less in the gym. Um, I've actually been able to go nine for nine quite a few times in equipped powerlifting, which is is rare, especially for a super heavyweight where my openers are insanely heavy. Right. Um, but I've also been on the other side of the, the coin where I, I've had a bomb outs. And um, that is really, I believe, a function of what I did to myself in training. And obviously, in hindsight, it's easy to identify, you know, the, these training cycles, I did this, and I attempted these weights. And these training cycles, I was more on like a comeback phase. And I didn't worry, I didn't put the pressure on myself to set PRs in the gym. Um, and it just ended up that I ended at these crazy numbers, because, you know, once you start making attempts, like you feel unstoppable. So I feel like the mental game is really important. Um, just keeping yourself grounded in the gym. I think that's probably the one thing I would tell myself is to stay on that straight and straight and narrow path where the training does not matter. You know, it's all, you go all in on the one day, which is the meet. I, um, there were a couple of good things that I thought you had said there. And, um, you know, one of them towards the end when you're focused on the numbers at the meet, right. And you're not focused on certain numbers in the gym, instead of focusing on the numbers in the gym, you become focused on the task that you're doing. Right. So you're more, aware of your technique your like what you're trying to do um one of the things in like you know i know the heavier guys and the recovery and stuff definitely is different um but even for like lighter lifters so like and this is kind of where i think like the brilliance of a conjugate program does come in because you can still lift heavy but you have these these testers almost right like i know for me like i usually get 20 to 30 pounds more 
um, on the floor than I do from a deficit. So if I use a two inch deficit with something and I'm hitting a certain number, like there's just these lifts that I know that really help guide my numbers without having to take a competition lift. Like I think if I had a, if I tried to max out my competition lifts all the time, like even after maybe two to three weeks max, I would just hit a fucking wall and it would just roll far backwards. And I do think it's a process, right? It takes time to like figure out which which lifts you know have that like carry over to certain things. Yeah, like indicators. Yeah, and like I fucked up before my meet in January because like I was grooving it in the bed shirt. Like I felt fucking good. And obviously like I didn't have anything to go by, right? So it's just like I put it on and all of a sudden it just felt okay and I was able to touch and have good success. And like linearly it just kept happening each week and it's like, you're in the middle of it and it's like, wow, this is fucking great. I don't know when this is going to end. And I got caught in the moment. So I touched 380 with like, and I might've been able to even double it in the gym. And I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm going to focus on the squat because I'm not hitting depth and just do boards on bench. So I went <laughs> like four weeks of just board work and you were there at the meet. I like, I missed 315 as a warm up. I was like, holy fuck. It's like, I almost had to learn how to bench in the shirt again. I remember, I think I came up to you and I was like, leave that shirt on and just stop being a pussy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You were like about to change your shirt and I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. No, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken it. I wouldn't have taken it (laughs) off. I, uh, so I had told Hartman before because, uh, I was struggling to deadlift in the Centurion and I didn't, I hadn't put on our velocity yet. And I was like, man, should I just deadlift Ron? He, uh, and in that conversation, he's like, man, if you're going to lift equipped, lift equipped. He's like, you know, bomb out in a suit before you're going to take it off and and do lifts raw. And I was like, you know what? That's a great fucking point. So like, no matter what, I would have left it on and I would have just rode out on my shield with that zero total. But uh, (laughs) I've been there. It's not that bad. (laughs) It was a, uh, but it was a really good learning experience. Right. And like, at the end of the day, when I look back, it really made me want to stay in equipped lifting because I think it, uh, it just brings a whole new element to it. And like, I thought, oh, one board, that's close enough, right? You see all the multiplied guys doing it. But like, I had never competed equipped. Like these guys have been lifting for 15 years in equipment, you know? Like, yeah, maybe they can get away with it, but I sure as shit. Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of the stuff we're talking about, it might not resonate with everybody because you have to enjoy the super long process that is equipped lifting. Um, but as far as indicators, you know, I, I really think for me, and it might sound cliche, but speed on my comp lifts are the greatest indicator that I have because again if if I'm not going to attempt anything that's near my platform PRs you know I have to rely on on the feeling of the lifts in the gym to be confident enough it's like if you squat 936 in the gym and then all of a sudden you're you know you're doing well and then your coach calls for 1019 you know you might be a little nervous so you have to remember back like in your toolbox or your training, like, Oh, I fucking smoked 940. I just smoked my second attempt. Like I'm good. So there is that element of fear that comes out. At least I think equip lifting gives me that sense of excitement that I never really got from raw lifting. Um, if anything, raw squats excite me, but raw, raw bench is not exciting at all. And, and raw deadlift is like, you know, it's like, you know, we've all been trying to see who the biggest macho guy has been since high school and max out our deadlifts. But, you know, the, the equipped deadlifting, it adds, I mean, equipped lifting, it adds hope, right, to every lifter's 
situation. So like the loving, the, the playing field is so much more level and equipped lifting because everybody could pull a trick out of their sleeve to win an event, win a discipline and keep their total in the running to win a meet. When you go to a big raw meet, you know, who's going to win. When you go to a big equipped meet, you're wondering who's going to bomb, who's going to look like shit. Who's not going to, you know, who's going to be shaken when they walk out their squats, you know, what's going to go wrong, what's going to go right. And it's a really exciting competition where you don't get that in raw. Um, you know, and just one last thing, if I go back and look at all my meat results and all my attempts, when I've opened lighter, I've finished heavier. Um, I'm super competitive. So there's meets I remember, like the 2017 World Games, I remember specifically because, you know, you're training in secret for like seven months, you're in a super class. So you're not in your regular weight class, you're in a class with 120 kilo lifters and super heavyweight lifters. So and it's all done on, on at the time it was done on Wilkes. So you don't want to put a lot of training out there and you want to, you know, as a super heavyweight, you have to push some crazy lifts to win on formula against some of the best 120 lifters in the world. So I open the heaviest I ever have on all the lifts for that meet. You know, when you're, when you're going to a once in a lifetime event and you're, you're a young powerlifter, it's very hard for you to get out of the mindset, this is the last day I'm ever going to lift, and I'm going to leave it all out there, I'm going to open heavy as shit, and I'm just going to go crazy, right, so that was kind of how I went in there, and uh, what happened, I ended up only making one lift in each discipline, <laughs> so, you know, and, and that actually has repeated itself, every time I've gotten comfortable pushing my openers, you know, say on squat past 950, um, it, it's, it's never ended well. Every I've squatted a thousand, four or five times in competition now, um, at different meets, different years, whatever, every time my openers have been in the low nine hundreds every single time. So I've never been successful with an opener over nine fifty and been able to even get over a thousand because I end up having to repeat attempts. So, um, it's just funny how things work out, but I think the mental game and, and meet the execution and you know getting in a groove um training correctly for it and not pushing it over the limit that all comes into play um where you know maybe in raw lifting there's there's a little more room for error people go really heavy right up to the meat um i've talked about this before like i saw i see lifters if, if you just go on instagram a week out of raw nationals you get to see some of the craziest shit but you'll see some lifters pr in their deadlift seven days out I'm like, I don't give a shit if you just had the greatest training cycle of your life. You have no idea how you're going to feel after hitting a deadlift you've never felt before. And you're going to go back and rely on bar speed or RPE to justify it. But at the end of the day, you have no idea how that lift is going to affect you over the next seven days. And what you can usually do is pick the lifters who are going to lift like shit. And, you know, if, you, if you're experienced like you or I, you're, you're pretty accurate if you're paying attention. The funny thing is, is about like, I like to pull heavy seven days out, but not a, not a PR. Like it could be a variation. It could be something else, right? Like two weeks out, we might, we might do that. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm not saying I don't like for me a week out, I might hit a 740 or 750 deadlift. Right. But for me, that's, that's where my opener is or a little less. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not hitting a, a PR deadlift seven days out. And I, I've, I've literally, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I see people are testing their lifts seven days out or people are doing their openers 
on Tuesday, when the meet's on Friday, I'm like, what, what are you, what strength gains can be made on Tuesday before the meet? You know what I mean? All you're doing is taxing your body and people think they're in this kind of bubble that they have to maintain the strength. Like if you're that fragile, then you just shouldn't go to the meet. You know what I mean? And like the crazy part is, is you hold on to strength a lot longer than what people typically think. And like what we do three week waves and like, there are times. So like, I'm going to use like Alyssa and Jess Ward, who was at the Arnold, they hit all time squat PRs on a box squat in week one of a wave. Right. And like normally, and like, if there's a little bit of room there, it's like, oh, well, yeah, we could go to a meet and let, pretend it's a comp squat. We could go to a meet and try to chip it. But to come back and even try to hit that two weeks later, an all-time PR like that, it's fucking rare that that yep. even happens. Like you get those, it's kind of like what you mentioned before, you get those very limited opportunities to hit those. And obviously, like if it's a variation, it just catches you by surprise, right? It's like, well, you didn't expect that to happen. And you're touching these heavier weights, it's like, great. But like to do it before a meet, like you got to be careful because that was your opportunity, right? And like there are times where it's like, Hey, let's end it there to, and I hate using this because it's a dumb fucking term, but it's true to save it for the meat, quote unquote. And um, yeah, I don't get pulling like, you know, hitting those comp PRs that close. Like we'll, we will, you know, two weeks out, we will, um, we will hit those heavy singles. Then we take like openers. Um, but with those singles, it just gives me a good idea of where we're going to be in the platform. It's usually less than somebody hits in a gym. So if they're grinding out a rep type of thing, I'm going to take two and a half, five kilos off of that thing. And like, so this was just instilled in me with Shaco, like go six for six, then pull for a win. Like, so, you know, be kind of conservative with the squat, be kind of conservative, not conservative, like push it. But, you know, it's like a law of averages type of thing. Like, oh, if I add two and a half kilos, is it worth missing? You know, don't get me wrong. There are, I think there are moments in time where you know, that opportunity presents itself and like, yeah, fucking, if you can squat, you know, like Kerry going for over 300 pounds on a squat at 52 kilos is kind of a cool moment. You know, we'll put it on the bar and we'll see what happens. But um, I think, you know, typically we're, you know, I don't like playing the guessing game a lot at competitions, but if something like that happens, it's like, there's just, I don't understand how you can try to repeat performance. That'd be like competing in a meet on Saturday, seven days later, trying to, compete or beat that performance again it's just it's 100%. there there has to be some <clears throat> level of performance at a meet that is maybe ambiguous or i don't know how to say it but it, it doesn't seem achievable but in in the back of your mind as a coach you know your lifter can do 102 102 they don't know it but you do um because they just hadn't hit that in training yet. And that's the way I prefer. And it's just like after, so you might think that's like a fluke when you're like, holy shit, I hit a 50 pound PR that came out of nowhere. But after you do it year after year and you're like, okay, this can just pretty much be put down to a science where a percentage base, I can quantify what my performance will be if I stay within this range and be patient, then I think there, there is less guessing to it. And you just have to trust the training and the philosophy that you'll be fresh and ready to execute on meet day. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, like you, there are only so many times you can empty the gas tank in a short amount of time. And so like, you do gotta, you gotta pick your spots. Yeah. People, people, you know, a lot of people talk about like Ed Cohen and how he's the greatest of all time, which may be true, you know, competitively 
um, he might be the greatest power of all time. And he's been quoted as saying, you know, save your heavy singles for the meet because there's only so many you can do in your lifetime. And I do feel like that is going to become prevalent in the next few years of USA powerlifting. And, you know, if you look at a guy like Ray Williams, who I love to use as an example, because it's like so much genetic potential came out of nowhere in 2013, right? Um, he had a good run where he won five straight IPF worlds. Um, he trained in a way where heavy singles was pretty much the bread and butter of his training, um, pushing training maxes over his comp maxes, squatting a thousand pounds raw consistently. Um, and, you know, after five years, and it's terrible f- for me to say this because I'm a big fan of the guy, but, you know, his training shelf life might be over due to injuries. Um, you know, I don't know that to be true, but it seems like he's at least on a downswing and, and we'll get to observe if he's able to like train out of that or change some things and, and come back to hitting all time PRs. But I think, you know, you could observe a, a decrease of performance due to the way, you know, he decided to train, which was train three days a week and pretty much hit a max effort lift on one of the disciplines each day. You know, I, I I do take an interest into how people peak at their meets specifically. And, you know, before the last Worlds that Ray did, obviously I'm a huge follower of the guy, so I followed what he was doing up until the meet. You know, he did a photo shoot a week before the, the last IPF Worlds uh, where he squatted 1,000 pounds because obviously that's what you need to do if you're at a photo shoot at Rogue HQ. He got on a plane and went to Belarus, and he – he missed his opener three times and you know to say i was upset about it obviously like i'm rooting for american lifters i'm rooting for ray specifically but i probably am the only one who could objectively sit here and be like well i know why that happened you know what i mean when everybody else is like oh what a bummer or accuse him of using steroids or some other ridiculous thing i'm like none of that has anything to do with it other than the fact that he trained too heavy too close to the meat and he's been trained this way for five years his genetic potential is pretty much at its max and now there needs to be some reassessment of how he trains and prepares for competition what would you say if he changed because he does mostly it's all complex i believe i don't think he uses much variation what if what if he did those singles and he utilized some variation which controlled absolute loads to be you know obviously like you know, like Louis Simmons will say, box squats tend to 15% lighter than their top end squats and stuff. What would you say to something like that? I I would, I mean, that'd be the first step in the right direction, even if it was chains or bands and something that took the load off the, the lower portion of the lift and helped him, you know, have better recovery or just better execution between, you know, session to session. Um, Box squats, I don't know, for a guy like Ray Williams who squats such a certain way, if a box squat would change his stroke or not. But I, I've seen him do some pause squats. And what I've seen is when he works with lighter loads, he doesn't, you know, take pause squats to depths and thing, things like that. I think if you really had him at least apply a different technique to maybe some Olympic style pause squats or something completely different from his standard power squat, which observing him, he actually squats in a way where he needs over 900 pounds raw to hit depth. It's like, he's wearing a squat suit. His body is so strong. And I've seen it in person. I've watched him warm up and do a meet. And I'm like up on the side of his hip the entire time trying to see what's going on. Um, 
you know, I, I, that's a step in the right direction, but maybe something just higher frequency squat two days a week and, and have auxiliary movements. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and don't do, you know, how, I mean, he, he loads a thousand pounds a lot in training. Um, so I, I, it's funny cause I think he has success with deadlifts and you'll see him pull 765 in the gym but then he'll pull 865 in a meet i'm like well if you just apply that same principle in the squat the same thing will happen um so yeah that's just one example i'd love to use because it's he's you know he's the most popular lifter in the world and you can you know i think he's at a a pivot point in his lifting career right now where i'm curious to see his performance over the next like year to two years I'm interested in that too. And like when you watch him squat, he's so upright. And the difference between his squat and his deadlift is pretty significant, right? It's like 200 pounds. Like when I look at somebody like that, my perspective as a coach is this dude's lower back is just waiting to fucking snap because he's never at those angles with those lows that he is in the squat. So all it's going to take is one bad step. So that's why like something for me, if he got wide and sat back in a box or even close stance, safety squat bar, box squats, and really just start like pounding away at that lower back, like yeah. still a while. I know, like Louis Simmons told to Oliveira, he's like, you have thousand pound legs, but a 600 pound low back, <laughs> right? And like, and at, at the end of the day, like that's going to be the limiting factor, whether it's with injury or performance or whatever. And I yeah, think too many people just don't target weaknesses enough. Yeah, and we're starting to see like a new, a completely new era of super heavyweight lifters where even super heavyweight lifters 10 years ago, like take Brad Gillingham or Brian Siders or, uh, you know, uh, name any good super heavyweight lifter. If raw, they could still deadlift more than they squat. Right. Right. And now we're seeing this thing where, and obviously as you get lighter, that, that difference becomes even more exaggerated yeah. where the deadlift is most of your total if you're a classic lifter um same with me you know i i deadlift a little bit more than i raw squat you know if i squat raw squat 700 i pulled 750 and, and i could probably pull more than that right now um but we see this new era like joe pena ray williams blaine sumner um you know before he tested positive kelly branton there are guys who are squatting way more than they're deadlifting raw so i i don't know it lends itself to a very specific type of lifter i have no experience coaching a lifter like that i've never seen that i think there's only a few people in the world who who lift that way or jesu wepa is another example no a thousand pound raw squatter you pull 700 if he's lucky um you know so i think that's shorter stockier builds getting into powerlifting um powerlifting becoming more popular so there's more exposure to, to these people that might not even picked it up do i think ray williams is the strongest person in the world yes but do i think there's somebody out there who could be stronger than him that never picked up a barbell 100 percent. just the odds are that way so you know you're seeing these types of lifters that you know and and, and judging has gotten a, i feel has gotten a little bit more lenient and these guys are five nine 350 to 400 pounds which is insane and they're squatting borderline depth and they're they're fi- somehow they figured out how to squat more than they deadlift which is very rare and it's something to you know to keep mind of when you watch these guys train and compete um so you know if i was coaching one of them i would probably th- change my style a little bit to i don't know what i would do but i would sit down long and hard and think about it you know I think you you made a really good point even with Ray Williams like the higher frequency but doing more like RDLs and like like I, I do think those accessories that target like complete opposite angles of what he's actually because even on his deadlift he sits down 
right? And yeah, it's okay. almost like it's a all, squat. yeah, it's a squat. Like he tries to throw it all onto his quads. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. there's many ways to skin the cat, like you said. And I think that is a perfectly good example of, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think that's a good place. I know we've been going for like an hour and 20 minutes here. Um, <laughs> you can give your, uh, give your podcast a little shout out, tell people where they can follow you on, uh, Instagram. Or yeah. So, you know, a couple months ago we decided to start a spicy PL podcast and just kind of like a joke of a name, but it's been pretty fun. Um, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, any podcast app, um, we're on there. Um, if you're looking for something different, we kind of have fun with it. Um, joke around more so than not because powerlifting tends to get super serious these days and everybody wants to talk about the science of training. We, we kind of talk about everything else. So we're trying to do something different and have a good time. So, uh, you know, give us a look. It, it is different. I think you're right. Everything's like general information and it's, uh, it's definitely more fun. Yeah. Um, we talk some shit as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, your Instagram handle, if people want to follow you. Big yeah. Joe Cap with two Ps. At Big Joe Cap. Um, not much of an Instagrammer, but I try. So uh, <laughs> I see some trolling happening on there sometimes. Just a, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> All right, guys, you can follow me. It's KWKN, our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston. <laughs>